0: and welcome to Return to Regalia. I'm Una, and today I'm joined by my friend John. Hello. Um, hi John, why don't you start off with telling us how you got into the series? Yeah,
1: so like a lot of book series, I got into this because uh, Una recommended it to me. <laughs> um, I heard about it because I'd read uh, The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins before, but I'd never read it before. and then. During college, uh, Uno suggested, "Hey, you should read this series. It's very good," and I read all five books probably within the span of uh, two three months. Yeah. Uh, back in college, uh, I haven't revisited them since then, though. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time we're reading them. It's been fun. I read the first three chapters as well.
0: Yeah, I think we should just get into it because there's a lot to cover in these chapters. So where we last left Gregor. Um, In chapter three, an old man called Vicus just walked up to him and asked if he's from New York City, which uh, snaps Gregor back into focus. And chapter four starts with Gregor suddenly remembering the laundry and how he needs to get back upstairs before his mom gets home because she'll freak out when she sees that he and Boots are gone, especially after the same thing happened with his dad. So Gregor tells Vicus he needs to get back to the surface.
1: Something I really like about these chapters, especially, is that I think it really highlights how intelligent Gregor is, which I think is a really unique thing about like a teenage character. Like usually like they're like they have a lot of drive, or like they're an independent thinker. It's not usually that they're like really, really smart, but like even when he first realizes he or he remembers that, oh yeah, New York City and laundry and everything, like what goes through his head is how he's making all these mental calculations of like how long he thinks he's been gone and like if it'll still be like if his mom will realize something's wrong by the time they get back and then even later on i'll get to that later with his other parts but it's like i love how you can always see his thought process and like thinking about how much he's thinking and what he needs to do and like 11 year olds don't usually i feel like that wouldn't be the instinct that they would have of like okay let's add up how long I think I fell through this cavern. how long we rode on the roaches. I think they would just kind of have lost track, but he's like been keeping a mental tally of everything, even if he didn't realize it.
0: Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. These chapters are so much about how Gregor is just calculating and planning and scheming to get back to the surface. These chapters really show how smart he is and how fast his brain is working. So... Vikus tells Gregor, it is simple to fall down, but the going up requires much giving, meaning Gregor and Boots need to stay in the Underland. Gregor argues against this and says, I mean, you're great, but I've got stuff to do upstairs, which I think is very humorous. And I love the use of upstairs as a euphemism for the overland. I don't know why it just tickles
1: me. He's got a lot of sass in this, uh, in this uh, chapter as well, especially, yes. especially once we get to his conversations with Luxa. So. He can be such a little
0: shit sometimes. <laughs> it's, he's got a lot of good lines in these chapters. So Gregor picks up Boots and heads back the way they came out of the arena, or he tries to, but Luxa signals for a bat to block their path. It knocks Gregor to the ground and Boots lands on his stomach. The bats fly around them and Gregor sees they all have riders. He notes, quote, one cocky looking guy Mm. on a glossy black bat who's lying in a reclining position and propping his head up with one hand. So this is the first mention of Henry and Ares, even though we won't meet Henry for another couple chapters and we won't even meet Ares until the next chapter after that, I think.
1: Again, it's kind of like what you said about temp in the last few ones. Like we have no idea how, like especially Ares, is going to be so important. Yeah. The series.
0: Yeah, he doesn't get introduced until almost the end of Act One, and I don't think that he speaks that much to Gregor at all in this book. It's really interesting how Suzanne Collins decides to introduce these characters and like when she decides to deploy them. So Boots is delighted. Apparently she loves bats and likes to watch them at the zoo.
1: Of course she does.
0: Gregor describes how the bats in the glass enclosure fly around without running into each other by using echolocation, and he explains he knows what that is because he's read the card by the exhibit a whole lot while waiting for boots, and the narration says he felt like something of an expert on the subject, which I find absolutely hilarious considering that he has to actually learn echolocation later in the series. Oh yeah. And Ripred gets on his case constantly because he can't get it. So it's really funny to me in the first book that Gregor is saying that he's an expert on the subject, but he can't figure it out until like book five. So that's fun. Boots bounces on Gregor's stomach, chanting about the bats, and Gregor puts her on the ground because, quote, the last thing he needed was to throw up in front of these people. I also love how these chapters make it so clear how self-aware Gregor is. He's very self-conscious about how he looks to the underlanders and mm. he wants to seem cool, not exactly cool, but he needs to look in charge and not like he's about to throw
1: up. His social skills are so on point. Like every time he says something, like he always knows if it's like if he said something wrong.
0: Yeah. It's immediately obvious because he tries to be so polite and there are a lot of instances in these in these next chapters coming up where he tries his best to be polite and he still ends up like stepping on toes and it becomes immediately obvious to him and he kind of tries to course correct. So Gregor manages to get some laughs when he tells the bat riders, what? like I'm going somewhere. More classic Gregor Sass. The bat riders back off and Gregor knows it's pointless to try escaping again, but he thinks these people were a little too smug for their own good, so he fakes them out by pretending to make a break for it. The bats dive toward him again in surprise and end up in an awkward clump, which makes several riders struggle to stay on their bats. I love the recurring bit of Gregor trying to take the underlanders down a peg. He's trying to get the best of them and show them they aren't all that impressive. Because
1: at this point, like he's kind of he he's realized that this is going he's going to lose this battle. Like he's not going to be able to escape at this point, but he just wants to like yeah give them a little bit of humiliation.
0: Yeah, he just wants to get in like one quick jab. Get a
1: moral victory.
0: Yeah, this actually makes the crowd in the stadium seats laugh, and even Vicus is trying to suppress a smile, but Luxa is furious. <laughs> She orders them to follow to the palace and signals her bat. Just before Aurora crashes into her, Luxa jumps into the air, lifts her legs straight out to the sides, touches her toes, and lands on Aurora's back. Gregor just yells after her, You're wasting your time with that stuff, even though he is actually kind of impressed. <laughs> I love this part. I love a good enemies to lovers art. Of course. Not only is this scene showing that Luxa is very arrogant and she's a big show-off, she's also very talented, and Gregor is admiring that at the same time as he's condemning her arrogance. So he's already starting to see what kind of person she is, and the
1: good in her, and like the potential. The dynamic to set up. It's a common relationship. Yeah. But that doesn't make it not a good one. Yeah, It's very clear that there's going to at least be a friendship between them towards the end, but it's going to take some time.
0: Exactly. It reminds me of Annabeth and Percy. and Percy.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: The dynamics are very similar. Like Annabeth is also super smart and talented and athletic, and Percy admires that. But at the beginning of their friendship, Annabeth is kind of a show-off, and she's kind of a brat, and they don't get along... I, I love that bit. Just kind of a hint of what's to come. Vikus asks politely if Gregor will come to the palace, Gregor asks if they're prisoners, and Vicus says they're not, but he jokes that Luxa is preparing the dungeon for them. The dungeon comes into play again several times throughout the series, So it's cool that it kind of gets mentioned offhand here so early. It won't come back for a while, but the dungeon is kind of an important part of their society because a few different characters get thrown in there at different points. Gregor agrees to follow Vicus and they leave the stadium. Gregor notes that the stadium seats are emptying because apparently his arrival ended whatever game they were playing. Just a side note, I really need to know what game they were playing. Like, do you think it's just basketball on bats?
1: It could be like Quidditch without the booms. Yeah,
0: yeah, like some kind of Quidditch get the ball through the hoop game. If you had giant bats to ride around on, what game would you design? Oh, gosh. I would probably just end up making, like, soccer, but for bats. Right.
1: I don't think, a com- I, I don't think they would be, like, the type to have, like, combat in the air. I feel yeah. like that would be... I don't think they're described as having swords or anything. Right. It wouldn't be, like, a jousting situation
0: either. I think it would probably be something like that. We never get to hear more about this bat ball game, mm-hmm. but it is really iconic as the first glimpse of the Underlanders that we get in this series. I'm just really interested in what these people do in their free
1: time. I am trying to think of like what other like hobbies and like uh, recreational activities they right? have. I don't recall like if there's much because especially after like this first book, like it gets a lot more into like the the questing of everything yes. and the missions and the prophecies.
0: Yeah. Hence,
1: there's not as much downtime that we spend in the Underland.
0: Exactly. Exactly. There's like a few glimpses we get like. At Hazard's birthday party, they're dancing and there's music. But you're right that in this book, war breaks out. So as soon as that happens, they're no longer able to just chill and play ball games. Vicus strikes up a conversation with Gregor as they walk. He guesses that the Underland must feel like a dream to him and references the crawlers. He says, What is it you call them? Cockhorses? <laughs> I always thought that was hilarious as a kid. That's a really good joke. Gregor asks if Vicus has been to the overland, thinking that if Vicus can get up there, so can he in boots. But Vicus just says, no, such visits are as rare as trees, which is him just saying that they're super rare because trees don't grow in the underland, except for golden apple trees, apparently, which is something that we'll get into in a couple books.
1: (laughs) I love the also I think this is late yeah, it's later on in some of these other chapters, but we get more about like other visitors from the overland. And I love the subtle droppings at first of like why they're so rare.
0: Yeah. I'm really interested in what other Overlanders came to the underland and what exactly happened to them because they
1: only give vague descriptions of what's going on. They only mention a few that like come to like this area of the underland at all. Right.
0: And I'm also really interested in this way that Vicus implies that there have been visits up to the overland. I need to know what were the rare times that underlanders have visited the overland, and when was that, and why did they do that, and like what was the outcome, because I can't imagine it was good.
1: I feel like, yeah, if it had been a successful journey upwards, like... It would have happened more frequently. And then also, there's also the implication that, like, they think the overland is like a wasteland of sorts. Like, they don't think life is as sustainable up there. And that's why, like, they came here at all. Yeah. And so they clearly don't have any re- more recent knowledge of the world, or else they would yeah. have updated that.
0: We'll get into Vicus's story about Sandwich a little bit later. But it is really interesting that part of why the Underlanders came down to the Underland was because this guy told them that someday life on the surface would go extinct. So he's kind of this doomsday cultist, which is fascinating to me.
1: We'll get into prophecies eventually, I know. But I love everything with the prophecies in this entire I, series. I can't wait to talk about Sandwich. Yes. Okay, Vikus says that
0: it's more often that Overlanders find themselves in the Underland and describes a few he's met. Gregor asks if they're still here, and Vicus says, <laughs> Sadly, no, this is not a gentle place for Overlanders. Gregor assumes this means the Underlanders killed them. And I mean, yeah, this is a hell of an assumption to make, and it's kind of rude, so I understand why Vicus gets offended at this. But also, you can't just say ominous shit like, This is not a gentle place to an 11-year-old who is already having a really bad time. He's already been chased
1: by giant 15-foot bats.
0: He has no idea what's going on. You can't just say shit to him and expect him to not jump to the worst conclusions.
1: Like, he's in a totally foreign land. It's kind of like the bathing situation that will will continue to develop it's not even it's not even like concluded at the end of these chapters like it's like they the underlanders have a real communication problem.
0: They do C- because at this point Vicus is trying to tell him that this is a dangerous world, but he's not outright saying that the rats are evil. No one is coming out and saying we're at war with the rats and the rats would kill you. They're just alluding to how dangerous things are without actually telling Gregor, and that gets him in trouble later, and it's really upsetting that the Underlanders just can't come out and say it. I don't know if that's just because the story needed to go that way, like it's more suspenseful if we don't know exactly what's going on with the rats, or if the Underlanders are specifically trying to keep Gregor in the dark. It frustrates me to no end how especially Vicus just doesn't tell gregor anything i'd say it's probably a bit of
1: both plus just poor ability to talk
0: yeah so vicus goes off on gregor for accusing them of murder which fair but he also tells gregor that if they hadn't taken them in he and boots would be dead now but he still doesn't say from what exactly so gregor asks if the roaches would have killed them vicus says no it would give them no time. Which is the second time we've heard someone use that expression. Earlier, Luxa told the crawlers that giving the overlanders to the rats would give them no time. Later, we learn Vicus is basically saying the roaches wouldn't gain anything from killing them. Time in this context just means life, meaning killing the overlanders wouldn't help the crawlers survive in any way. Gregor reasons that no one else knows he and Boots are in the Underland, but Vicus assures him that the entire Underland has heard about them by now, and that's not a good thing. They walk through the huge stone doors of the arena, which take six people to push open. They come to another fluttery curtain, like the one Gregor and the roaches passed through on the way into the arena. Now Gregor can see it's made of tiny black moths. Vicus explains how it works as a warning system, because as soon as the bugs' flight patterns are interrupted, the bats know about it. From beyond the veil, Vicus welcomes Gregor to the city of Regalia. Boots asks, Go home, Gego? And he tells her they have some things to do first. The chapter ends with him taking a deep breath and stepping into the moths.
1: I love that visual. The veil of the black moths.
0: Yes, I'm obsessed specifically because it evokes for me the hero's journey. So for anyone who doesn't know, the hero's journey is a literary template that describes the structure of a story in which a hero enters a secret world, gains mentors and helpers along their quest, and returns home having been transformed in some way. There are a lot of slight variations of the hero's journey template, but a lot of them reference a move from an ordinary world to a secret or magical world and Gregor absolutely falls into this narrative structure. Like, he literally falls into the Underland, meaning he's passing from the ordinary world into the secret world when he descends from his laundry room. But I think this part where he steps through the dark veil of moths is even more symbolically powerful, because while the fall from the laundry room is an accident, this is a deliberate choice to confront the unknown. Although he's kind of being forced to follow Vicus at this point, He is stepping into the dark on his own, not knowing what's on the other side. He's crossing a threshold, which is specifically called out in several versions of the hero's journey. Even the moths themselves are symbols of transformation, being bugs that change from caterpillars to winged insects.
1: Something else I love about everything, like everything you just said, spot on. Something that I think sets Gregor apart in this case from a lot of other hero's journey narratives is that he also has Boots with him. Yes! Like, because remember, he is, like, very, like, he's very much a responsible older brother. Like, he not only, like, is in charge of taking care of Boots, like, he knows it, and, like, he's fully aware that that's the role he needs to take. And so he knows, as he's doing this, he also needs to be protecting his little sister this entire time. Yes. A lot of times when we see heroes Journeys, like, either young adult stories, even, like, Alice in Wonderland, which I think is, like, the most direct, like, this is just, it's kind of a dark, darker or, like, alternative take on Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, Alice is on her own. Gregor has another human who he has to protect this entire time.
0: Right. She's this constant companion, and in some ways she's kind of a helper, but a lot of the time she's this extra thing for Gregor to have to keep track of that just complicates a lot of his quest which is not something you see in other heroes' journey.
1: She's two years old and afraid of nothing. Like he has to be constantly watching her.
0: Yeah. That's really what does set the story apart. Because I feel like if you, if you take boots out of this story, it just falls apart. Like it's not the same story at all. And Gregor is not the same character at all. If you don't make him an older brother, who's like, constantly an older brother it would be a
1: much more standard even if it was like lizzie who came with him yeah like lizzie being like only a few years younger than gregor would again also very much change it like he would still feel responsible for her but like she would be a lot more independent and just it would be a lot less of a protective role just because she's more capable on her own boots is like entirely she has to stay with him and we see that in the next chapter too like he is still nervous about like letting her go yes
0: And he's right to be. Exactly. (laughs) So chapter five starts with Gregor stepping through the velvety wings and he gets his first look at Regalia. He'd been expecting something primitive, but the city is magnificent. He compares it to New York City and thinks Regalia is much more beautiful. The grey stone buildings are tall, some at least 30 stories high, and carved with depictions of people and animals. Vicus explains that most of the humans in the Underland live here, while other species have their own lands. Boots asks where the moon is, then says matter-of-factly, cow jump moon. And Gregor thinks about how if roaches can talk and bats can play ball games, there's probably a cow jumping over a moon somewhere. I do like this reference to nursery rhymes, because in the fourth book, a nursery rhyme turns out to be a prophecy that comes true. And I don't know if Suzanne Collins was actually planning that far ahead, but I really do like this slightly recurring motif of nursery rhymes.
1: I'd believe it. Yeah. I feel like she's such a formalist in how she writes, like everything has like a set number of chapters and everything, which she continues over with Hunger Games. I feel like she's the kind of writer who would have planned ahead, at least a little bit, like not having fully formed stories, but just like ideas of like, oh yeah, if this is a prophecy... There can be prophecies other way, other places where people aren't expecting them.
0: Yeah, I'd like to believe that definitely some of these things that she sets up with just an offhand mention do become relevant. And she was expecting it too, like the echolocation thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like she could have been planning the whole time that Gregor would have to learn echolocation. And wouldn't it be funny if in the first book, he says that he's an expert on it, and then he actually does have to become an expert on it.
1: Even little things like Lizzie. Like, there was, there's no- I. that's one I do believe. There's no way she would have included the fact that, oh, Gregor has another sister. Right. And she didn't have any plans for Lizzie to also come into the Underland with them at some point. Yeah. Like, that would be a waste of a character, and I don't think she would have done that.
0: Agree. As they walk through the city, people stare at Gregor in boots because they don't see many overlanders. Gregor asks how Vicus knew he's from New York City, and Vicus gives us a little bit of info about Underland geography. He mentions there are two entrances to the Underland, somewhere he calls the Deadland, and two more that open into the Waterway. But since Gregor is alive and dry, he must have come from the fifth entrance, which is in New York City. In the next book, we learn about one of the other entrances, which is coincidentally also in New York City. It's in Central Park. And it's one of the gateways that opens into the waterway. Mm. When Gregor tells Vicus that he fell from his laundry room, Vicus says thoughtfully, Your laundry room. Yes. And he's saying this because he already knows about the laundry room because he's heard it from Gregor's dad. Mm. And this is what I mean about Vicus in particular withholding information from Gregor. I don't know what Vicus's game is. Like, he could have just said, yeah, there was this other guy that fell, and he happened to look a lot like you, and he also said that it was his laundry room, and yeah, Vicus drives me nuts sometimes.
1: Does Vicus know that Gregor's dad is still alive, just being held prisoner at this point, or does he not not know the full situation? I think he probably doesn't know for Mm -hmm. sure. The charitable reading would be he doesn't want to give Gregor a false hope or, like, overwhelm him more. Right. I don't think he's being charitable
0: yeah. at this point. I mean, I think from the very second Vicus sees Gregor, Vicus thinks, like, oh, that's the warrior. He's the prophecy guy. Right. And. He's immediately calculating how am I going to get this guy to stay and complete these prophecies.
1: And if Gregor thinks his father's out there, or even someone from the same laundry chute, if he doesn't know that Gregor's father is Gregor's father, like that would be a distraction. Right. So Vicus is very... Conniving.
0: Yeah. He gives very specific information at very specific times to try and manipulate Gregor. And I'm not sure that it's always... Malicious. Vicus does think that he's doing the right thing, but it does drive me nuts. Vicus also explains that Gregor and Boots only survived the fall because the currents were cooperating, meaning the misty updraft Gregor and Boots rode down to the Underland. They get to the palace and Gregor notices there's nothing carved on it and there's no door. Vicus explains, doors are for those who lack enemies, which is raw. I always loved that line. And the building is smooth, so no one can climb the walls. They ride a kind of elevator platform from the ground up to a window. And inside, there are three Underlanders, whom Vicus instructs to bathe Gregor and Boots. Gregor realizes the three Underlanders are just regular people, not royalty like Luxa. So he says, nice to meet you, and tells Boots to say hi. Boots makes them all laugh, which relieves the tension. Perfect Boots. Gregor thinks about how their mom says Boots never knew a stranger, meaning she thinks everyone is her friend. Gregor has a bit of an internal monologue about how he wishes he could be more like that, because he only has a couple good friends, Angelina and Larry. He figures other kids probably think he's stuck up, but he's actually just private, and he's had more trouble opening up since his dad disappeared, which is very sad. A girl who Gregor thinks is about 15 introduces herself as Dulcet, another MVP of the series. Very,
1: very sweet and kind.
0: Yes. She introduces the other two Underlanders, Merith and Perdita. This is just a great trio right here. I really love Merith and Perdita. I think Merith is probably my favorite character in the whole series. He's He's just the best. Marath and Perdita are adults who are tall and muscular, and Gregor gets the feeling they're guards, even though they don't have weapons. Gregor notes that Dulcet is way friendlier than Luxa, and just a side note, Dulcet literally means sweet, so she's really living up to her name. While we're on the topic of names, just really quick, Perdita means lost in Latin, And it's the name of the protagonist in Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale. There are a lot of Underlanders named after Shakespeare characters, and I find that really interesting. The name Marith seems to be a Suzanne Collins original. It's the name of a small town in Tunisia. And there's this thing called the Marith line, or maybe it's pronounced Marith or some other way. I won't get into that right now because I'm planning to do a whole episode on all the Underlanders' names at some point, but also some baby name websites tell me that the name Meredith is a variation of the name Margaret, which ultimately comes from the ancient Greek and Latin words for pearl. Margaret, coincidentally, is also Boots' real name, so that's interesting. I can't wait to hear your
1: elaboration on Henry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I might be able to pull out some Something. some fun parallels to- some other Henry. Personally, I always thought Merith's name was just a slightly different spelling and pronunciation of the word merit, like excellence or worth, but I could just be making that up because it kind of sounds the same. Dulcet asks, you will follow to the waters, Gregor the Overlander? He says, I will follow to the waters. And then he gets anxious that he's being too formal and the Underlanders will think he's making fun of them. So he says, I mean, yeah, thanks. Which is what we were talking about. He's just trying so hard to be polite and not say the wrong thing because he knows that these people are so different from him and he has to watch the way that he talks. But he does try his best. While they walk through the palace, Gregor realizes he'll need a map to navigate, but can't ask for one because that would be suspicious. He knows that even though he's being called a guest, he's really a prisoner and he needs to find a way to escape. Dulcet interrupts his train of thought to say she's never met an overlander, and she's only meeting him now because she looks after children. Gregor says that's too bad because she's the nicest person he's met here yet. This makes Dulcet blush, and because of the whole underlander translucent skin thing, she blushes a lot. She says, that is too kind for me to accept, and behind them, Marith and Perdida murmur to each other. He was just trying to be polite here and tell the truth and be nice to Dulcet, who is being nice to him, mm. but he's still stumbled into a social faux pas because he's implying that Luxa is rude, which she is, yeah. but you can't just say that. Gregor's gonna continue to make these little mistakes. It's fun.
1: Uh, I don't know if you're going to get to it, but I also love when he has like different... like um social cues where like he again is realizing like later on when he when he and boots are split up to go bathe like he specifically is like he says he's worried about boots going into the other room but he doesn't want to offend dulcet because he already misspoke here
0: right i don't have a specific note on that so i'm glad you brought it up yeah
1: again he's just always thinking he's always being very conscious and self-aware of how he's coming across, especially since he's trying to escape and he doesn't want to arouse anybody's su- su- suspicions of yeah, how he's acting.
0: exactly. exactly. This boy's mind just thinks a mile a minute. He's got so much going on in his brain.
1: He's trying to be a model prisoner right now so yeah. nobody will think he's going to ever escape, even he- <laughs> though it's... All that's on his mind.
0: Exactly. I, I just love how this entire time, half of his mind is on acting polite and learning more about this place and telling the underlanders what they want to hear to some extent. And then the other half of his mind is like, how can I use this information to get out of here? So, they reach the bathrooms, and Gregor and Boots split up to go in separate rooms because apparently one side is for girls and one side is for boys. So it sucks that the Regalians haven't figured out gender-neutral bathrooms yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Overland hadn't at this point either when this book was written. That's true. So.
0: But like, all, yeah. So yeah. Gregor is maybe just assuming that's what the separation of bathrooms is maybe for. Maybe it's full of
1: infants and adults. So
0: right. Adults. It could be anything. We We, we don't can choose to know.
1: believe what we want.
0: Exactly. the Underland. So Gregor explores the bathroom and finds that both the toilet and the bathtub pool thing in there have continuously running water. This makes him realize that there must be some kind of underground stream, and if the water can get in and out of the palace, he can too. He's so smart for this. And in the next chapter, we get a little bit more about how his dad was so into science and talked about science with Gregor a lot, and I just think this realization that he has Just from being in the bathrooms and observing how the water is flowing, realizing that he can use that as a guide to get him out of the palace is genius. Chapter six starts with Gregor bathing, and he's trying to get as much of his overlander smell off him as possible, reasoning that it'll make escaping
1: easier. Yeah, they still haven't explained anything about why he needs to bathe.
0: Right, And he is kind of making the right choice here of I need to blend in to escape. And he's doing what they want him to do, but he's doing it for his own reasons. Not
1: because they told him to. Yeah.
0: So he dries off with woven towels and dresses in new clothes. He wonders what they're made of. And later in the book, we learn that all of the Regalian's textiles are spider silk, which Mm -hmm. is fun.
1: One more thing here I love is, again, they mention how like his... Towels back in his apartment are really ratted and like tattered because they're poor, and it's again, it's just reinforcing how he is not like his well, his life up up on the overland like is not very good. Yeah, ever since his father left, especially.
0: Yeah, that's just more evidence of how they're struggling. So in the hallway, he asks Mereth and Perdita what happened to his overland clothes, and they explain they've been burned because it's dangerous to keep them. Gregor sees they're afraid he'll get mad, so he makes a show of letting them know he's cool with it. Perdita tells him he'll smell even less once he's eaten their food, and Gregor says dryly, that'll be nice. He can be so sarcastic sometimes, and it kind of goes over the underlanders' heads. Dulcet comes out with Boots, who also has new clothes. Gregor is dressed in blue, and Boots is dressed in pink, which is interesting to me. Because the whole blue is for boys and pink is for girls thing didn't come about until the 1940s. And I wonder if they're actually dressed because of their genders, or if it's just a coincidence. I mean, we'll never know. We never get that kind of world building. But it's interesting to think
1: about. They just had a really gender binary person fall down 20 years ago (laughs) and teach them all. They were really influential.
0: Yeah, they were like, in the overland, boys always wear blue and girls always wear pink.
1: I also love here how he, again, makes a mental note of trying to recall what Boots was wearing before they burned it.
0: Yes! Yeah, he tries to remember what she's wearing in
1: case he has to explain the missing clothes to his mom. So responsible. I I also have a young, young, younger siblings. There have been times, especially my brother, has gotten lost. I had no idea what he was wearing. <laughs> I wasn't keeping track of that. <laughs> Such a good big brother.
0: Right? Gregor wonders what he'll tell his mom about the Underland, but decides to figure it out once he's back in the Overland. Dulcet gives Gregor a backpack thing that holds boots so she can look over his shoulder, and Gregor is elated because this will make escaping easier. And he does note that his family could never afford something like this, but he sees other people use it all the time. I love that throughout all of these books, Gregor is basically just wearing a baby Bjorn and carrying his toddler sister around. Because he wears this backpack in every book to carry her around, I think. It's like his constant accessory.
1: He must, just equips boots. <laughs> he must be so He's so sore by the time coat of Claw comes around. She's yes. grown so much.
0: They all go to the high hall, which is a long room with no roof that opens onto a balcony. Dulcet explains this is so bats can fly in easily. Vicus is there with his wife, Solavet. Love that name. <laughs> yeah, but what's the opposite of an MVP of the series? <laughs> because Solavet sucks. We don't know how much she sucks yet. In fact, right now she's actually kind of cool because she offers her hands to Gregor, and that's the first time an Underlander has made an effort to touch him so far. Just a side note, I pronounce all of the names in this book, like how the audiobooks pronounce them. So I say Solovet with a T sound at the end, but I know some people pronounce it SOLOVE, like it's French or something. But my reasoning is that if we are pronouncing dulcet with the et on the end, we should also be pronouncing et on the end of
1: Solovet. You're the linguist, but like, I wonder if like those are meant to be like, that's a consistent suffix. Yeah. For names being pronounced. We meet. Two
0: other characters that have this et on the end, we meet Solovet's sister, Miravet, and we meet Luke's cousin, Stellavet. So I wonder what that means. I'm definitely going to do a whole episode about their names. I'm obsessed. Vicus invites Gregor to look out over the balcony at the city, and Gregor's fear of heights gets the better of him, so he takes a step back. Vicus explains that the population of Regalia is about 3,000, which is not many. That's like a really small rural town. And Vicus starts to give us some world building about Regalia, but Solovet cuts him off and they sit down for supper. Gregor hoped Dulcet would eat with them, but she just stands off to the side. He's uncomfortable with her just standing there, but he's afraid he'll get her in trouble if he says something about it. Just because he's already stepped on the whole... Like, she's obviously a servant, or at least not as important as the rest of the people here.
1: Picking up on those social cues.
0: Yeah. He adjusts quickly once he gets the read on the situation. No one sits down until Luxa comes in wearing a fancy dress and her hair down. She's with a guy who is about 16, and Gregor recognizes him from the stadium. He's the one who'd been lounging on the back of his bat. Luxa introduces him as her cousin Henry and he jokes with Gregor that Luxa is going to poison him. Luxa says, I gave orders to poison scoundrels, forgetting you would be dining as well. Which is a hilarious burn.
1: Kind of like Solovet. It's interesting how like, I mean Dulcet's an exception, obviously, but yeah. it's interesting how both Solovet and Henry, like, Gregor has better first impressions of them than he does to the people who like, he makes more of a friendship or camaraderie with. Right. I don't know what to make of that. It's just, it is interesting that that is a pattern. Like, Luxa, he hates at first. Solivet and Henry, he's like, these 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 two are fi- fine. These are nicer people.
0: Yeah, I think it's because Luxa doesn't have anything to hide. She can just be herself mm-hmm. and herself happens to be rude. But Henry and Solivet both have evil schemes I mean, maybe Solovet doesn't have her evil scheme yet, but we learn about it later. But at this point, Henry definitely is a traitor. Yeah. So I wonder if he's playing this up for Gregor just to make sure that he's not suspicious or that anyone is suspicious.
1: Maybe Gregor just has like a in instinctive connection to other calculating people.
0: Yes. <laughs> they're all schemers. Yeah,
1: they're all schemers. Even Vicus. Yeah. Like they all... Have other plans hidden, and you know, like you said, Luxa's is just what you see is what you get.
0: Exactly, exactly. I also like the way that Luxa and Henry joke in this chapter because it establishes what kind of relationship they have, which is very light-hearted. Henry doesn't take their royalty very seriously, even though Vicus tells Luxa that she needs to take her position seriously, and we learn that Henry can be a bit cruel mm. in this next part coming up. Yes. The bats arrive, and Vicus introduces them as Aurora and Euripides and mentions that they're bonded to Luxa and himself. Gregor is confused because he thought the bats were like horses, but now they're being treated as equals. Euripides greets Gregor in English, and he realizes they can talk like the roaches do. The narration says, Gregor began to wonder if his fish dinner would want to chat as he sliced into it. Which is just a great joke I had to mention. If
1: they were alive, they might.
0: Gregor asks what it means to be bonded, and Vicus explains the humans made an alliance with the bats when they came to the Underland, and human bat pairs can pledge themselves to one another. Gregor asks, And what do you do when you're bonded to a bat? I mean, besides play ball games together, and everyone goes quiet. And when Luxa says, You keep each other alive, Gregor realizes he's making fun of something serious. So, This is the first time that we hear about the whole bonding thing. And we don't need to get too deep into it right now because they talk about it a little bit later on their quest. Luxa explains a bit more about what bonding means, but it's great that we get just a little taste of it here because it ends up being very
1: important to the whole series. I feel like some of the biggest two themes in the series are prophecies and just everything with the prophecies. And, like, the relationships between the different species in exactly. the Like, that's what everything hinges on.
0: Exactly.
1: It comes into play. It does. Sure. Yeah,
0: it comes into play later in the series. Gregor says he didn't know, and Solovet says it's okay. Gregor asks if they bond with the Crawlers, which makes Henry and Luke's a laugh and make fun of the Crawlers. Bicus explains the Crawlers aren't known for their fighting ability, but notes that they have longevity and deserve respect, especially from Luxa, who will come of age to rule in five years, because her jokes will have weight then.
1: Two things here. One, yeah, I would definitely be allying with the cockroaches. <laughs> like, that. I would want resiliency on my side, for sure. They're the
0: best!
1: But then, also, I think this is a good example of, like, just even, again, very subtly, very good world-building here of just how important, like, battle is. Uh, capabilities and like warfare is to the underland culture like it's if you're not a valued warrior you're not going to have a good place in the society
0: exactly it's everything to them i mean especially to people like henry who totally ignore the other types of power on display in this series vikas says the crawlers do not need to be warriors to shift the balance of power in the underland I really love this line because it specifically uses the word warriors, which carries a lot of weight in this series. Later, Gregor is dubbed the warrior, a kind of chosen one for the Regalians, but throughout the series he struggles with this title. One major theme of these books is about the nature of true strength and power, and if that always has to come from violence. One of the main messages of these books is that violence can and should be avoided. Vicus is trying to make that point to Luxa here, by telling her that even though she sees the crawlers as weak because they don't fight, that doesn't mean they aren't strong or powerful in their own way, and that underestimating that power is a mistake. This line is also a direct nod to Temp, the crawler, who becomes a very important character, and does in fact shift the balance of power in the Underland indirectly. So, I really love this point by Vicus, because it illustrates one of the major themes of the whole series. Conversation dies after this, but then the food comes and we get a lovely description of dinner. I always loved the food descriptions in these books. Even when they describe foods that I don't like, it sounds delicious. Like I, if someone put a plate of like mushrooms and fish in front of me, I'd be like, uh uh-uh, no. But... This book makes it sound so
1: delicious. The fact that the greens are described as a rarity, like, I don't like leafy greens. I would eat these leafy greens. Yeah,
0: yeah. The meals described throughout this series are great. They put a platter of grilled fish in front of Gregor and he notes that it doesn't have eyes. This triggers a memory. He thinks about a time he and his dad watched a TV show about fish that lived deep underwater and didn't have eyes. But when scientists brought them up to study in a lab, they grew eyes after a few generations. The narration goes on about how into science Gregor's dad is and how Gregor loved going to the American Museum of Natural History with him. Gregor prompts Vicus to tell the story of how humans got to the Underland. And this is what we learn. People came from England in the 1600s, led by a stonemason named Bartholomew of Sandwich, who had visions of the future. I hate how non-specific 1600s is, because that is a whole century. And I feel like, I mean, maybe that's just not important to the underlanders, but a lot can like change in 100 years, especially when people are colonizing
1: america <laughs> i wonder if anyone's done like a deep dive into like if like a person from sandwich like was also one of the like colonizers who like this is perhaps based off of, of this is like something Collins completely made up i have I feel no like it could idea be both. it could be or it could be either
0: yeah i feel like i maybe have seen some analysis of that sort and people diving into the history of this which if you're listening and you have more historical insight, I would really love to hear it. History is just not my subject and I'm bad at researching it. But supposedly Sandwich saw the underland in a dream and set out to find it. And when Sandwich and his followers got to New York, he, quote, got on famously with the local tribe, mm-hmm. which I think is suspicious as hell. The book doesn't mention a specific tribe but I think the people Sandwich supposedly met would have been the Lenape, who lived on Manhattan, later renamed Manhattan. Please correct me if you know for sure. According to Vicus, the Native Americans made, quote, periodic trips below the earth for ritual purposes for hundreds of years. But they didn't want to live there and didn't care if Sandwich wanted to, which I also think is suspicious. <laughs> After 50 years of figuring out how to live in the underland, there were 800 regalians and the gates to the overland were sealed. I have a lot of questions. First of all, this isn't a question, but they didn't do a great job of sealing themselves in because overlanders get in all the time. Second, were the Native Americans cool with the regalians sealing up the place they'd been going for ritual purposes for hundreds of years? I doubt it. Third, how old was Sandwich when they sealed the gates? Even if he was like 20 when he first discovered the Underland, that would mean that he'd be 70 when they cut themselves off. And that is super old for the 1600s, right? So I have a lot of questions. I don't believe all of Vikas's story. I think that Sandwich himself is a very unreliable narrator. And I'm not sure that we can believe any
1: of this. There is 100% cultural revisionism going on here and historical inaccuracies i mean it's been 400 years yeah like you said there's definitely something at play in terms of like how much of this is accurate i kind of like how that is a major thing with all of Bartholomew Sandwich's role in this story because like he never shows up we actually i don't think we get a ton more of like the ori- origin of the underland in the entire series like it's mostly this like because that doesn't really play a part as much as the like political situation in the present but i think this like less than certain nature of bartholomew's role and everything and his predictions his like the stories that have been passed down i think that's a really interesting reflection of like how all of his prophecies that play a huge part they are they're taken with. They're, they're treated as absolutes by some characters and then taken with a grain of salt by others.
0: Yeah. Like Vicus here is telling this story as if it's this magnificent adventure. And isn't it so cool that Sandwich had this dream and like came down and led all these people and he was like a savior? and But in reality, he's just this guy who convinced a lot of people to follow him and do this crazy thing and live underground. It's so suspicious that the Regalians are such an insular community and they've just been telling this story to themselves over and over again without questioning it. Later we do learn kind of the other side of the story and what Sandwich did when he got to the land that Regalia is built on. But we don't find out more about that story until the fifth book. But over the course of the series, Sandwich is called more and more into question. And I think it's genius that we have the first info about him conveyed by Vicus, who is so on board with it. And he's totally a believer. Like, he's totally buying the propaganda Vicus ends his story by saying, Rome was not built in a day. This was how Fred Clark, the overlander, put it. Fred being one of the overlanders Vicus mentioned last chapter. Gregor asks, what happened to Fred? And Solovet says, he died without your son. I'm interested to know what the actual cause of death was. Like, does she literally mean he got sick without the sunlight? Or does she just mean metaphorically? (laughs) Gregor wonders if the sun above ground has set and if the police are still questioning his mom about their disappearance. He knows that if the police have left, his mom will be sitting at the kitchen table, alone in the dark, crying. Which is beyond devastating that he has been through that before, so he knows exactly what she's going to look like. And he knows that right now he's the cause of that. It destroys me. It's so devastating. But the chapter ends with Gregor thinking about how badly he needs to escape the Underland. And in the next chapter, he's going to try his best. <laughs> this was quite a trio of chapters. Yeah, um, We get introduced to a lot of Underlanders. We get introduced to the story of the Underland, at least from the perspective of the Regalians. And we learn a bit about bonding, which is a really big part of the series. Even though we still haven't met Ares. We haven't met him. He didn't come to dinner.
1: We, saw, we see him, but we don't meet him.
0: Yeah, we haven't heard his name yet. But we do meet Henry, who is kind of the antagonist of this book. Do you have any other thoughts about these chapters?
1: What you mentioned about the hero's journey before got mm-hmm. me thinking about how like it's funny how it's this kind of plays with the formula a little mm-hmm. bit. Because right now, if you were to stop like stop reading right now and like reevaluate and you're thinking about how this fits in with the hero's journey, what is Gregor's mission? His mission is to get back home. And that doesn't really change, but there's another like later on in this book, there's an added quest that he also goes on. And so then he has two things that he has to work towards instead of just one. And I think that's a really clever way of, again, switching it up a little bit. Because if the whole book was just him trying to get him and Boots home, it would, again, just be very straightforward. It wouldn't be bad, but it would be a lot less intriguing. The fact that there's multiple things he has to accomplish, I think, is really interesting.
0: And we don't get that secondary part of his quest that kind of becomes his main quest until like a few chapters from now but right. which i have been in awe recently just rereading this that the whole first act the whole first nine chapters is basically just the setup and we don't get the main plot until act two
1: and yet the pacing is perfect
0: i know yeah like, that's
1: a long build-up but it doesn't feel like it and then it doesn't feel like the other half the other two-thirds of the book are rushed either it's like this feels like about the right amount of time we need to spend it in. like we had it, it's essentially one chapter we get here of like the history of the underland and yeah. that's exactly how much we need
0: exactly it's Perfectly paced, Suzanne Collins gives us just the right amount of information to not overload us and Gregor, but also to keep us kind of questioning, like, what is going on fully, and it's it's very good just taking the time to introduce us slowly to the Underland and all of these different regalians who, not all of them are going to be important this first book, but throughout the series they are important, and just taking the time to introduce them now early is really smart, but it doesn't feel like an overload. It doesn't feel like too much. It really is perfectly paced. I love looking at the structure of these books, like how you said that each book is three acts of nine chapters, and she does the same thing in Hunger Games. I need to know like, what is her thought process behind that. I think that it Fits very well into the hero's journey. It fits really well into the three-act structure. It's very good, I imagine, for teaching kids about fiction to just be like, this is the inciting incident. This is like the first, like this is the climax of act one. This is the climax of act two. It really lays it out nice and clearly. But even though it's very like obvious and straightforward, it's so well put together and it's compelling.
1: I could be totally making this up. I know she was a TV writer before the Underland Chronicles.
0: I think you're right. I
1: feel like that, I feel like I've read somewhere that, that she has either elaborated or, like, there's been an interview about that where it's it's elaborated that, like, that's why she likes working with the suction Because she is used to working in, like, time constraints. Because, like, especially back in, like, the days of, like, Only Cable shows like she's used to working within like a time frame specifically and that's maybe why she likes the structures of the book so much.
0: That's cool.
1: And I think again that could be total manifestation of my memories, but I feel like I've read that somewhere. I'll have to check. Yeah,
0: I'm gonna have to look. That would be really cool. I would love to hear what she has to say about that. But yeah, so that was uh chapters four through six. Next week we're gonna do seven, eight, and nine, the rest of act one. To end today's episode, we got an anonymous question on Tumblr. Someone asked us, "What is the deadliest weapon in the Underland Chronicles?" Oh, gosh. I have some. I have some answers.
1: If you go, yeah, you go. Okay,
0: I think that we could talk about some of the weapons in the series. So, like Sandwich's sword, which Gregor gets later but doesn't really use until the fifth book. Ares's wings. Because according to Ripred, he can break necks with those things. I always loved that line. I think that's also in the fifth book. I think the probably the correct answer of what is the deadliest weapon in TUC is the manufactured biochemical plague virus, just because of the sheer numbers. Yeah. But the best weapon in TUC
1: is Ripred himself. I- I can't wait till I get to Rip Red because you said Dulcet is maybe your favorite character? Or, uh, no, did you say Perdida? Marek. Marek, although, yeah. Rip Red's my favorite character. Oh my god, yes. I love Rip Red.
0: He makes this whole series. It would not be Underline Chronicles without Ripred and the whole way that he is.
1: Everything about him I love.
0: I can't wait to talk about him. He has so much going on. He's one of the most complex characters yeah, we'll have to save that for when yes. we actually meet him. But I would
1: also put Whipwood as the as the best weapon. He is
0: he his whole body is a weapon. Well, that is all we have for this week. John, thank you so much for joining me
1: on this week's episode. Of course, happy to be here.
0: Check back in next week or um, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at Return to Regalia. And until next week, fly you high.